Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. This episode is going to be slightly different to previous ones. For various reasons, the question of race and policing has been receiving increasing comment in the Irish media. I've seen a steady stream of people suggesting that it isn't an issue, or that there is no evidence to support a suggestion that racism is a problem in Irish policing. It's true, we don't have the steady stream of evidence that we see in other jurisdictions, where we can say with a degree of certainty how much more often those of black or Asian ethnicity, for instance, are likely to be stopped and searched by the police. This is because the Guardi refused to collect that data, a problem in itself which we'll come back to later. But that doesn't mean there's no evidence. We've covered the theme of race and policing a number of times, and guests like Maho, Estefani and Israel have shared their personal experiences of racism. In this episode, I'm collating all the evidence and research that does exist. We're going to review 20 years worth of research and data. We're going to speak to no less than five different experts. Dr. Sam O'Brien Ollinger, Dr. Egon Mulcahy, Dr. James Carr, Dr. Lucy Michael, and Haritha Alaganathan of Youths Against Racism and Inequality, and hear about the findings of their research. And yes, most of these contributors are white settled people, a product of the lack of diversity in the university sector. We will reference over a dozen studies that have been conducted on this theme. These are all the studies that I'm aware of, and one thing is very clear. Not one study has found that racism is not an issue in Angarda There is no evidence to support that claim. We'll begin with a study from Amnesty conducted in Ireland in 2001, with over 600 black and ethnic minority respondents, which found that 25% of racist incidents were at the hands of Gardaí. 37% of travellers and 54% of black Irish people felt they had experienced discrimination from the Gardaí. 56% felt they were not treated fairly by Gardaí. 61% said that Gardaí did not take racist incidents seriously. And 57% said they would not be welcome as members of the Gardaí. As we'll see, within Angarda Síochána, attention began to be paid to the issue of diversity around the time that immigration brought increased diversity into Ireland. But of course, the traveller or Mincare community has had long-standing concerns with policing in Ireland. I spoke to Dr. Egon Mulcahy, Associate Professor in the School of Sociology in UCD, about research he conducted on the experiences of members of the traveller community. That research was largely based on extended interviews and focus groups with over 40 members of the traveller community and over 40 police officers, conducted in 2002 to 2003, with some follow-up interviews conducted over the following year. I suppose in some ways it was familiar from findings uh, from other studies. But the great irony, of course, is that more work has been done about travellers in the criminal justice system within the UK context than within Ireland. And this just seemed, you know, ironically further evidence of, of marginalisation, you know, when you don't even recognise something as a problem. That in itself is, is just a, a further indication of how, how maybe deeply rooted it is as a problem. I suppose there were three things in particular, maybe. Um, the first really was the issue of reputation and 
the extent to which the the broad status of travellers was demeaned within the eyes of the police, you know, it it showed different ways through which uh, travellers were talked about by the police. It showed um, a different, or I suppose a specific characterization in terms of the unreliability, the untrustworthiness, and you know what many guards would have believed was the inherent uh, deceitfulness of travellers. You know they were not to be believed. They um, and and of course this also was compounded by their mobility. You know this this was kind of a, an affront. This was a, an insult to the the job of the police. You know whose task is to know who everyone is, where they are, and what they're doing at all times. And um, the very fact of being mobile um, was, you know, seen almost as a as an effort to to thwart the the policing activities of the guards. Um, so that broad issue of of disdain that these were a a, a group who were considered perhaps not fully civilized, um, were considered not fully integrated into norms of respectability and uh, decency who are considered, as I said, deceitful, but also maybe always the propensity for violence, always, almost outlaws, almost outlaws. So one issue I think was that that first notion of of kind of reputation. Um, There were two other issues probably that are worth worth highlighting, I think in particular. One was the the issue of over-policing. and the extent to which travellers are viewed as a problem community. And therefore, when the police um, became involved, they became involved very enthusiastically. Lots of police would show up. And in fact, anything travellers did was viewed as an opportunity for, um, you know, additional detective work. Um, in other words, you know, let's always check the the um, tax and insurance of any vehicle that a traveller is driving and so on. Um, so you had that sense of over-policing. And then you also had kind of complementing that ironically, um, under-policing, the, the kind of under-protection of, of travellers. And in a way, kind of one of the problems that travellers pose with the police is that they're mobile, that they're kind of invisible to the police. And and yet they're so they're so obviously present they're so visible at the same time so um you know a traveler encampment it's not hidden away behind a luxury villa or in some enormous compound with security guards it's there on the side of the road traveler encampments are easily visited they're easily seen um but travelers were in effect they were viewed as a problem if they were thought to have committed crimes against members of the settled community but when their own victimization came into play, they simply weren't given, I think, um, due care. They weren't shown due respect. They weren't given a, a professional service. And again, the idea that, you know, traveler, a traveler committing crime against another traveler, it wasn't a crime. It was almost something to be, well, let them sort it out themselves. And so you had that, um, that distance, that remove, and some of it, ironically, was caused by um, concern on the part of the guards for their own safety. Oh, we'll be careful going into a traveling site in case we're attacked. And of course, you know, certainly there's been a fractious relationship between the police and the guards historically, but 
if you think about that in context, what it really means is that someone in, on that campsite has called for help and the police are too scared to enter the campsite. Now, I'm not saying this was always and everywhere the case, but if you had instances of that, then what does it mean for the safety and welfare of the people in the um, in the traveller site who have requested help and who are, who are not getting it or are not getting it quickly or, or appropriately and so on. So you had, I think, those three overlapping issues, the issue of, of reputation, the issue of over-policing and the issue of under-protection. And, um, you know, it was a small-scale study, um, all things considered, and yet those findings seemed, um, you know, I, 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 I thought that that really was a... a an accurate sense of relations between police and travellers in, in broad terms. The mobility of members of the traveller community was quite central to this. And a lot of it had to do with, with the issue of mobility. Again, the um, so, you know, travellers complaining about police involvement in evictions, complaining about always being moved on, whether that be from a campsite, whether that be because you're showing up in a bar and they don't want to let you in and please go home and so on. Um but also, as far as the police were concerned, um, one guard I remember um, recalled how, you know, when travellers moved into an area, you know, settled people, residents would ring up and, you know, make a complaint and the guards would go down and say, you know, where are you going to be staying tomorrow night? You know, um, and and also um, trying to, to generate prosecutions, whether or not they would go anywhere, but simply as a means of, of turning the heat up and making it uncomfortable for the travellers. And even if even if no, no, no formal prosecution emerged down the road, the idea that this was simply, you know, that, that law enforcement was used not as a way to kind of address a crime, but rather as a way to, to address a, a social situation or a social mm-hmm. um, you know, move them on, let let someone else deal with them. This was the and the guards um, uh, who were interviewed, they were, you know, upfront about that. Uh, I mean, I think historically, certainly that would have been much more uh, prominent as a way of, you know, dealing with, with travellers. You know, they were a problem. How are you going to deal with them? As opposed to a, a um, an orientation which maybe began with, gosh, I wonder what problems travellers are having. I wonder what service we can provide to help them deal with any concerns over crime or order or safety or security and so on. Aegon commented on the fact that diversity only emerged as an issue to be attended to in the early noughties. Well, certainly individuals, individuals said it. Um, I mean, the the irony, of course, is that most of the the kind of the diversity policing agenda that emerged in Ireland in the early 2000s, much of that was in response to um, immigration spurred by the, the Celtic Tiger people from Romania, people from Poland, people from Nigeria. Um, and it seemed as if that spurred concerns about service provision and about diversity and about equality and about respect um, and about ensuring that the police were not behaving in a discriminatory way. So so that form of diversity activated policing, whereas the diversity involving travellers was was simply seen as a, as a non-issue. And some of that had to do with whether travellers or, or, or when and whether travellers were recognised as an ethnic group. But I think it also reflected a, a broad concern that any discrimination against travellers was not because of difference, not because of bias, not because of bigotry, not because of prejudice on the part of the police, but rather because travellers were an inherently 
criminogenic and inherently problematic community. So if you are biased against a, um, a black Nigerian person, that's racism. If you're biased against a traveler, it's because they never pay their, their car tax or their, they never insure their cars or whatever. So, so the one, the, the, the position in respect of travelers, I think was seen as being grounded much more in an assessment of behavior as opposed to a, a stance purely on the basis of identity or prejudice. And that I think was how, in a way, such a deep-rooted level of, of prejudice could be sustained because it wasn't recognized as prejudice because it was seen as simply a, a reflection of the of the obvious estate, but simply of the way things were. That's the way travelers are. And, you know, when they get their act together, then we'll, we'll be a bit more attentive and so on. I, I, I think, I mean, trust me, there's, there's no policy documents putting it in those terms, but I think that that was the broad assumption underpinning the behavior of individuals as well as informing, you know, how the organization operated. I mean, it is it is ludicrous that diversity was recognized only when, you know, people with Polish accents appeared. Um, so um yeah, it 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 I, I think it I think it was spread across the organization. I mean, you did one of one of the things I should say as well, of course, is that some traveler um interviewees specifically noted, you know, positive actions on the part of individuals. Um, and certainly I think the activities um, emanating from the um, cooperation and cultural unit when it was first established, um, I think that was seen as a, as a very positive response on the part of the individuals involved. But I think certainly uh, from a traveler point of view, there perhaps was seen as a disconnect between that, that arm of of policy development and service provision and the realities of day-to-day of -day policing. Um, so I think it kind of highlighted the the you know extent to which you know do you judge a, an organization on the basis of the the actions of you know a few kind of dedicated people or do you judge it on the basis of business as, as normal. But certainly I I, I think the, the late arrival of discussion about diversity um, is a is a, a kind of a, a telling indictment, really, of just how invisible travelers were, in spite of their great visibility. Um, that that their needs were were seen as a secondary. You know, they were almost a social embarrassment to be brushed under the carpet, to be, you know, let them stay in their down the by roads and the laneways of Ireland, let them stay wherever they are. But you know, if they venture into the territory of settled people. Um, you know, we're we're here to you know maintain property values. We're here to ensure that the parks remain clean. We're here to ensure that there's no drunkenness in pubs and so on. In some ways, too, of course, when you talk about um, recent immigration patterns, um, it's it's not uncommon for people who migrate to want very much to integrate in the, their new society. It's not uncommon for them to take a drop down in terms of living standards. Ironically, you might be an engineer in in India and you become a you know a, a bus driver in, in in Dublin or something like that. Um, and one of the tasks then becomes oh trying to trying to ensure that your children move up the occupational uh, ladder and so on. Um, and one of the issues then, of course, becomes well when you've got you know young kids who who play hurling who speak with Carmo accents and. But her black, how integrated are they? What issues will they have in terms of being um, 
being recognized as Irish, being being granted all of the, the kind of formal and informal um, rights that, that go along with that. Whereas, um, you know, with, with travelers, this has been such a recurring issue. It's been, you know, for want of a better word, an eternal issue. And the fact that it hasn't been recognized as a problem we're dealing with itself is, I think, an indicator of the scale, the, the gulf, really. And some of that comes down to, um, I think, probably um, sheer bigotry. Some of it comes down to um, political cowardice and political vulnerability when it comes to um, electioneering. In other words, um, people think that if they're, uh, you know, they might be pro-rights, but they're opposed to traveller accommodation. I think many politicians think that is a very sensible way to get elected. I think, for example, we saw it in the last presidential election when, uh, uh, you know, anti-traveller sentiment was expressed quite openly by by one of the candidates. And um, and in some parts of the country, he received a, a high number of votes. So, so certainly, I think if you if you look actually at the information that has been gathered, there's certainly evidence to support the view that um, travellers have been identified really within the organisation as a problem population, but really that any efforts to address diversity have arisen not because of travellers, but because of migration trends. I mean, for example, and the efforts to, to increase diversity within the guard, so we'll, we'll get rid of Irish, the Irish language requirement, we'll reduce the height requirement, we'll, you know, that never stopped travellers from from joining the guards, you know. Um, so those measures were really undertaken, I think, to, in terms of the outward face of the organisation, seen to be addressing diversity when, you know, one key dimension of it. Um, in a way that parallels, I think, some of the debates about Indigenous peoples in, in different countries, you know, that Indigenous peoples, well, they're backward. They're somehow different from other minority groups, um, and, and I think that same level of, of I mean, one of the best ways to describe it maybe is just calling it, you know, bigotry that, that doesn't recognize itself as bigotry. You know, that seems to be an inherent reflection of an inherently inferior population group um, because the scale of, of animosity is so, so alarming, frankly, um, that um, if people are holding those beliefs consciously, it's actually a much more um, troubling situation than I think many of us would, would wish to acknowledge. In June 2004, Iona Management Consultants published a human rights audit of Angarda Siakona. This audit came on the back of a Council of Europe programme initiated in 1997 on policing and human rights. In response to this, Angarda Siakona created a human rights office in 99, and the audit was one of the actions taken in support of this work. The audit was conducted through desk-based research, interviews with 17 senior members of the organisation, a survey of over 1,200 members, focus groups with over 200 members, meetings with trainers in Templemore and community meetings. The audit heard senior officers claiming certain communities were responsible for higher levels of criminality without any evidence to support these claims. One senior officer wanted all non-nationals to be fingerprinted on arrival in the country. One said that 80% of crime in one area had traveller involvement, again without any supporting evidence. In the survey of Gardaí, only 15% believed they had a good relationship with travellers and only 21% with refugees and asylum seekers. 
In focus groups, Gardi talked about Nigerians playing the race card all the time. It was said there was greater criminality among Nigerians, travellers and refugees, without any evidence. And in the community meetings, they repeatedly heard of a lack of action when ethnic minorities reported crimes and then overzealous checking of tax, insurance and identity papers. This simultaneous over and under policing will be a recurring theme in this episode. Ultimately, the Ionan audit concluded that Angardishiakana is institutionally racist. This term was used by the Stephen Lawrence inquiry into the Metropolitan Police, looking at the failed police response into the murder of a young black man. The inquiry defined that term as the collective failure of an organisation to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their colour, culture or ethnic origin. It could be seen or detected in processes, attitudes and behaviour, which amount to discrimination through unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness and racist stereotyping, which disadvantage minority ethnic people. Ionan found that this was the case in Ireland, as evidenced by the way members talked about and treated different ethnicities and the organisation's failure to put in place structures to identify and deal with racism. Those structures have still not fully been put in place. When the finding of institutional racism was made against the Met, it sent shockwaves through the system and led to deep reflection and reform. And yet when a similar finding was made in Ireland, from an audit commissioned by the police themselves, nothing really happened. Perhaps this was because it was the same year that the first Morris Tribunal reports were published. Or perhaps it was because of a wider failure on the part of the Irish establishment to counter racism. In 2007, the Gardaí conducted a study on traveller and ethnic minority attitudes towards Angarishikana. It found that traveller satisfaction levels were at 52% compared to a national satisfaction level of 81%. This report is currently not available online, so I'm unable to go into it in any greater detail. Around this time, Dr Sam O'Brien Ollinger, author of Police, Race and Culture in the New Ireland, commenced his field research. This was ethnographic in nature, meaning he spent considerable time with Gardaí as they went about their job. I just thought at the time that Ireland really was this kind of almost laboratory experiment. There was this window of opportunity to capture what was happening at that moment. And so around 2007, 8, 9, 10, I suppose, is when you would kind of had enough time for communities to have become established. The newer communities uh, since kind of Celtic Tiger immigration in the mid 90s up to the the early noughties. Uh, And initially my, my focus was around class because I thought there was a longer established negative relationship in history between um, your working class communities and areas and also members of the traveling community was a kind of an obvious, very obvious one. Uh, But at the time, I just thought this is the historical moment. I'm kind of really lucky that this is happening right here, right now. And to get a a snapshot of what was going on because it was such early days in this new relationship between Angara the Shiakana and its members and members of, of ethnic minority, racialized minority communities. And I, I really kind of the hope was that the more light I could shed on this, the more evidence I could gather about this would convince key decision makers ultimately, 
policymakers, those in the Department of Justice especially, but also on Garda Síochána, to take stock of what was going on and to realise that, like, you know, maybe Ireland is kind of lucky at this juncture. We're at a stage where if we can capture what's going on right now and see the potential for things going the wrong direction, you know, maybe we don't have to make the same mistakes that were made in other jurisdictions. Uh, and it did take an ethnographic approach, so there was a huge amount of time spent uh, with guards on duty, uh, a lot of infield observations as they were going about their daily um, routine, uh, and also one-to-one -one interviews uh, in stations, in the back of squad cars, unmarked cars. And in the book, there's a whole aspect, a whole part, a whole chapter dedicated to what was done, how, where and when. Uh, a lot of the locations, the names have been changed because it was very important to protect the identities of, of everyone participating in the research. But the three main field sites were uh, a large suburban uh, station uh, located in probably, I mean, it would be easy enough to, to say, look, it's, it's the most or one of the most um, diverse, uh, demographically diverse uh, parts of Dublin. Uh, another field site was in Dublin's uh, north inner city, which for, for all kinds of other reasons was, was fascinating uh, when you're looking at issues around race and policing. And then the kind of really obvious third field site that I spent some time there was uh, the Garda National Immigration Bureau and detectives working in that role. There's a lot of commonalities across the field sites, um, and, but a lot of differences as well. Um, so the, I suppose the, the, the kind of the main features, if you like, of all the findings, it's hard to condense down into a short soundbite, to be honest, there is so much information gathered, but there was a sense of very much that guards were ex very unfamiliar with these new communities that they were expected to provide a service to, but also police uh, in every sense of those kind of words. So you would find, I suppose, one of the best ways to describe it is, you know, I mean, since the inception of the organization on Guard the Siakana, the birth of the state, um, uh, freedom from British rule, if you like, the whole situation with Angarda Shiakana was that you had, you know, an ethnic majority policing and there was Irish people policing other Irish people, basically. Now, there were massive social changes. Uh, you would have had major gender uh, issues, obviously. You would have had class issues. You would have all of these kind of things. I, I don't deny that there's massive social shifts between the early 1920s and, you know, the, the 2000s, of course there were, but a cornerstone of Irish policing for the best part of it is that about nine decades, my maths isn't brilliant, you do have Irish people in a fairly monochrome, monoculture, fairly homogenous compared to today situation. And local knowledge, um, relationships with local communities, very strong knowledge uh, about individuals, their families, the neighborhoods, the locality, 
very high level of intelligence there on people that they were policing. Whereas a big finding was that with inward migration and new populations, a lot of guards were lost. And I mean, that would be the same, you could say, for, you know, newly recruited guards at any point in history of the organization where they would come into a situation where they're now expected to police people they don't know. But I think a major difference there is that older guards, more experienced guards, senior guards have a blueprint already, a socio-cognitive map already in place that they can pass on to new um, guards. Whereas if you're talking about the situation with policing racialized minorities and new communities, they didn't, they just didn't have that. They were very much often at a loss as to know how to police and how to communicate very basic fundamental things that perhaps today's guards take completely for granted. But at the time, as I said, about a decade ago, this was extremely new and it really did rock the Garda habitus, the Garda mindset, uh, understanding of what their role is and how to interact with uh, people. And so there was this kind of, on the one hand, well, we really don't know what's going on. And this is so in such contrast to how we've traditionally gone about policing. But this is a serious problem. How do we reconnect, re-establish the same kind of relationship with these newer populations that we've enjoyed with older populations? And so if you're a police officer in that scenario, what do you do? How do you come to terms with this new environment, this new ecosystem and the lack of knowledge about the, the, these new people in your field of practice? Um, so a huge process of having to adapt to difference and diversity was also observed. And you would have different guards during interviews or uh, out on, on patrol at different stages of that journey of going from completely out of their depth and not knowing what to do to starting to have some kind of more familiarity with different populations you know, starting to become more familiar with body language, uh, tone of voice even, um, uh, customs, cultural norms, um, and the differences with the Irish population they'd be much more used to. That they, A lot of the guards that I spent time with, you know, they didn't go to school with anyone that looked different to them. They didn't have family members that looked different to them or were born in another country and you know how much they traveled outside of Ireland could be very quite limited in in a lot of situations so their exposure to other cultures and other ethnicities uh, was really on the job and that was a huge learning curve for a lot of um, Irish police officers so how they adapted to difference forms a huge part of uh, the the research that I did Um, then you'd have people at kind of a, a later stage where they'd gone from not knowing who they were policing to starting to get more familiar with who they're policing to now saying, oh no, now I know things about these, these people. Now I know what they're like. I find it easier to interact with them. Now, a lot of that knowledge 
would come from generalizations, would come from stereotypes, would come from stories they would have been told by other guards. And a lot of police subculture does revolve around safety, which I suppose is understandable given a lot of the situations they find themselves in. So safety and danger are big themes in the stories they'll tell each other. And how to manage or deal with someone in this certain type of scenario becomes a blueprint, a model for how you should deal with someone if you ever are in this situation, so that you stay safe, so that you and your colleagues stay safe, and so there's a positive outcome, whatever way you wanted to define a positive outcome. Um, so that's where you would have a lot of discursive constructions, a lot of discourse about different nationalities. Their sameness or their difference to Irish people. So Irish people being a benchmark. As kind of, they were kind of coordinates on this sociocognitive map that they would have and they would share with colleagues, pass on to each other, pass on to junior colleagues, report back to more senior colleagues about how scenarios went down depending on the situation. And um, so, yeah, huge amount of producing, circulating, and then putting into practice these kind of labels and categories. Um, which nationalities, for example, are more prone to attacking you? <laughs> which nationalities are more deferent to authority? Um, those kind of things uh, came up a lot. So any deviation from the norm, i.e. white settled Irish behaviour, was perceived in terms of safety or danger. Sam talked to me about how the initial interaction with the police, people are subject to the attitudes test to see how they respond, which can then shape the police response. A lot of unconscious cognitive processes are going on during that attitude test. Um, and if you are not familiar with people from different nationalities or what their experience is with police in their country of origin is how this was phrased to me a lot, then, you know, the signals can be completely opposite. I think a really, like an example that would have come up quite a lot is how in Ireland, if you approach someone and you ask them, how are they, what's going on, how's things, if they become defensive, if they don't make eye contact, if they start to get very uh, animated, these are all signs that may be taken as there's something wrong here and we need to find out more. Is this person you know, acting? This is starting to get suspicious. Whereas there would be, those are the exact things that other countries, other cultures, people from other countries and cultures do to profess their innocence, to show. It's a kind of a theatrical performance to a police officer that you have done absolutely nothing wrong and that you're not acting suspicious. So on that really basic fundamental level, um, the signals are all out of whack, if I can kind of phrase it that way. Now, whether guards are correct or not, that's a separate thing. This is just what I would be told a lot when I was doing interviews or when I'm observing interactions and later then quizzing guards about, well, what happened in that situation? Or what did you think was going on there? Or, you know, and, and they would give that kind of a, a response. Um, would be kind of quite typical. Sam talked of the stereotypes and biases he witnessed and how these were very much based at a community level. You have a sense that, you know, a certain nationality or a certain subgroup within a nationality, a certain group are, you know, 
prone to fraud or violence or domestic violence or public order offences or theft or, you know, petty crimes or... And then through your interactions, that has a kind of feeds into your practices. Those practices feed back into your experiences. And there's this kind of a, a negative spiral that can kind of uh, unfold. Now, the other thing, of course, as well, is that a lot of the guards I spoke to would um, also come across members of, the, of various racialized minorities as victims of crime. And that would give them a whole other dimension to their experience. And so there would be a lot of their, the interviews and the discussions I had with the research participants, with the guards, were, you know, contradictory um, and complex. But as you mentioned before, I mean, police subculture does have dominant tendencies and um, and the dominant narratives, the, the discursive devices, the constructions that they would come up with to help them make sense of these new and intense experiences with people from racialized minority communities would have overtones of, um, yeah, kind of culturalist, essentialist, um, uh, stereotypical kind of generalizations for, for sure, yeah. And were they open to changing their mind on things? Yeah, often enough, yeah, but it would really depend on, on the level and the extent of their interaction and exposure to um, folks from various communities outside of policing. You know, do they, are, they, are they on a football team with, with people from other, other countries or originally from other countries? You know, do they have a family member? And do they have friends outside of, you know, I mean, guards had housemates from different, and, you know, that would give them a completely different then complexion on their experience. Um, so the, the book and the research done 10-ish years ago really provides a snapshot of just how um, dislocated guards were at the time and may still be. In a, lot of, in a lot of ways. Their openness to reflections that took them beyond essentialist biases were not shaped by the organisation and its efforts in the space, but by personal experiences. It's kind of sad in a way because the newness of so many forms of diversity in Ireland meant that a lot of those biases were not ingrained or structurally absorbed. And you do start to think about how we had an opportunity to do things differently. Dr. James Carr of the University of Limerick discussed with me his work on the experiences of members of the Muslim community. When I was doing uh, research in the past, I remember actually outside of my own research, I remember recently enough hearing of a young Muslim woman coming down, I think, from from uh, Northern Ireland into to, to the Republic. And she the bus was stopped or whatever train she was on was stopped. And, and, and the only person who was given attention to by the guards was the black Muslim woman on the on, on the bus. Um, so my work, as I said, focused on Muslim communities. But I remember speaking to a, a member, a retired member of the Gardaí, and he told me of his experiences with the traveller community. And this point I made earlier on about sort of culture and being socialised into a particular culture. Now, I'm not saying that there is a culture of racism within the cards, all right? Not, not at all. But we can't, I think, I think every organisation has a culture, so we have to bear this in mind uh, as well. 
this this retired guard had told me that one of his while he was doing his training uh, as a cadet, he was in a uh, a car with uh, two Garda officers. They went to a halting site. It was something like I don't know three a.m. in the morning or something like this. There was nothing happening at the halting site. Um, everyone was asleep, and the Garda went in there and turned on the lights and turned on the sirens and and just kind of woke people up. And this young cadet in the back said to the two guys in front, the sergeant or whoever, I don't know who they were, and said, look, why, why, did this, uh, why are you doing this? And he said, just to let them know that we're there. Just to let them know that we're there. There, there, there was no other reason for this. There was no activity, nothing going on. And a very antagonistic relationship. There's something to that. Why are they just letting know the travellers know that they're there? I was struck then, I'd say maybe, oh, I don't know, a couple of years afterwards, of hearing of an example Almost exactly, almost exactly like that, but from completely the other end of the country, where again the guards had gone into the halting site at a particular time and had, you know, made uh, some sort of noise to let them know their presence, known that they were there. And uh, again, there was nothing happening. There was no crime or something at, at that particular time happening. So, when you ask the question at the outset in terms of is there racism within the Gardaí, number one, my first thing is about the experiences of the traveller community historically in this country and how their engagements with Angarda Shiakana have been. There have been even more recent reports of, of the treatments of, and we've seen them on social media, um, about the treatment of members of the traveller community by, by members of Angarda Shiakana, or at least, should I say, the alleged treatment um, uh, of, of members of the, the traveller community. Within my own work, I, I, I'll give you three examples of, of racism experienced by, by Muslim communities, um, here in, in, in Ireland in, in engaging with members of Angari Shikana. And when I say, like, I see, I present these to you as racism, the, the, the other person is one of the guys, one of the guards said to, to one of the Muslim men, uh, I'm just doing my job. You know, that's, that's, that was his perspective on it. But why, it's, again, it's the idea of the identity that's key here, okay? So, a first case, I remember speaking to a guy from one of the, 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 the urban areas in, in, in Ireland, a Muslim guy, he's in the car, He's on his phone. His wife is in the car with him. Garda sees him. I don't know if she's on a bike or whatever, but she sees him on this. He's hands up. He knows he's caught, right? He is, he, he's he's um, he's not contesting this. So she, she, she the, the Garda is speaking with him. Um, she starts asking him questions about who his partner is in the car, all this sort of thing. What's he doing here? Where is he from? All this sort of thing. And his response is, look, I've, why, why are you asking me these questions? You, I know I've, I shouldn't be using my phone. It's grand, but what are, what are the questions about my wife got to do with anything that, you're, that, that, you, know, you, that you stopped me for? Um, I think she, there was a threat of some sort. I, I can't exactly recall what the threat was to, to the... Um, it was something like, you know, your car will be impounded or something overnight. Um, when he asked for her identity... She didn't. Um, it, it, she didn't pursue it. It stopped. It, it, it went. But it, it finished in that particular incident. Another incident, a different city in the country. Okay, I'm not going to name the cities here, but there, these. But I'm speaking to you here, coming from, from from different parts of the country, distinctly different parts of, of the country. Uh, in one incident where there was um, there was a, a crime, actually, a, a road a road traffic accident had happened. Um, it was a Muslim guy and his wife in the car. Um, they called the guards, guards came along and immediately the guards uh, started asking him, where is he from? What's he doing? All this sort of thing. He was the actual, he was the person who was the, the innocent party in this 
collision, I think it was at the time. Again, he was saying, look, why, why are you asking me this? Why, you know, this has nothing to do with, with, with the case in, in point. No, he was deemed to be um, foreign, deemed to be Muslim and deemed to be foreign. And his religious dress at the time um, presented him as being foreign. Okay, but he's actually an Irish Muslim. He's born and raised here as well. Um, so luckily enough, he, he had kind of a knowledge of his rights and what he could and couldn't do uh, and so on. The, the third case demonstrates how when we think about policing of communities, how the sort of international tropes, they inform the local as well. That the local isn't kind of, um, that our experiences of policing here in Ireland aren't going to be uh, influenced by an international. So, Shannon Airport, protest against the, the, the Second Gulf War, whole bunch of people there, Richard Boyd Barrett, all these kind of speakers, I suppose left-leaning speakers, protesting against the conflict. A lot of people come to see them, listen to them and so on. And there are some Muslim guys there as well. Uh, as I remember um, uh, uh, the pseudonym that I, I've given him is uh, Ihan. I remember when Ihan told me, he said, look, you know, when it came to time for to eat, we ate. When it came to time to pray, we prayed. We just watched the thing. When it came to time to wrap up and go, we offered the organizers a hand to start dismantling things, you know, taking parts of the stage down or whatever it was they were using. He said they, they got into the car and as they were about to leave in the car, he looks into the rearview mirror and behind him there are two guys stuck in the car. So he can't reverse the car, obviously, the two guards behind him and then there are two guards at the, either side of the car. So the guards start asking questions and they start asking questions about where are you from? What are you doing here? Uh, what do you think of Saudi Arabia? What do you think of Hezbollah? And so on. And the guys are like, yo, why did you single us out? And I'm just doing my job, was the answer, as I said earlier on to you. So why were these guys, of all that crowd of folks there, picked out? Why was the Muslim girl coming down on the train or bus or whatever it was, singled out? Why was the guy who had stopped and reported a road traffic accident presumed, I guess, sort of guilty that he was at fault, you know, because... He, he, he is Muslim, he looks Muslim, he must therefore be foreign, that he doesn't know how to drive on a road sort of idea, right? So where are all these folks singled out? They're, they're singled out because they're members of particular groups and th th how their identities are presented to us. Why are members of the traveller community? Why have they had a different, different experiences with the guards than somebody from the settled community? Because they're deemed to be part of, you know, all travellers are members of this, you know, they're all part of this community that's has all these alleged kind of proclivities to whatever it might be. So we, we, we have experiences of racism from members of the Garda within the country. The evidence is there and has been gathered over time. I've gathered some of that evidence myself and probably others as well. And he discussed how the stereotyping of groups plays out. You know, when we think about, you know, that crime is associated with a particular identity, you know, we think it's got to do with a racialized community. We think about it if, if it's associated with blackness, for example, if it's associated with Muslimness, just to keep these distinct for a couple of seconds. You, you end up in a sort of, um, or you run the risk of this sort of circular proof um, idea going on, you know, that, okay, X community are associated with a particular form of crime or criminality. Therefore, as a police officer, I'm going to police this community differently either subconsciously or else by, by order. I'm going to focus my energies towards this community. Um, and then that obviously you have higher rates of policing, you have over-policing of a community. And then 
obviously you're going to, because criminality is within every community, right? You find criminality within this community that's been absolutely in the crosshairs of policing. And then that stands to sort of justify the policing measures that went on. The iReport system is a self-reporting mechanism for recording racist incidents in Ireland. So people who have experienced racism can make a report via the iReport website. Dr Lucy Michael, the sociologist who analyses the data in conjunction with the Irish Network Against Racism, talked to me about what they have found. So the iReport.ie system was set up in 2013 to allow the public to report incidents of racism. Uh, They could be hate crimes, it could be hate speech or incitement to hatred, Uh, it could be um, criminal damage like racist graffiti, Uh, or it could be discrimination in public services, in employment, in health, in schools, etc. So it really allows people to to report the very widest range of discrimination. Um, We've been uh, collecting that data and analysing it for eight years now, Um, and the numbers of reports have been growing. Uh, as it becomes better known, but also reports go up when there are particular incidents um, that are are well known in communities or or high profile. Um, There are some types of incidents that are more reported than others. Um, It's very difficult, for example, to know if you've been discriminated against in the workplace unless it's directly used against you with racist language. It's difficult to know if a landlord has refused you housing unless uh, they've told you on the phone somewhere's available and when you turn up and they see your skin colour or you, you turn up with a different name that they refuse you. So a lot of a lot of incidents is actually difficult to know. Um, so people can only suspect that something's happened. Um, so you do tend to get more reports about things where there's been explicit use of racial uh, slurs, racist language. Um, and you, But you also get uh, cases where people feel that really couldn't be anything else except racism. Um, And what struck me over the eight years is how conservative people are. They don't take a wild guess and say it might have been racism. They only come to report to iReport if they're fairly certain that it was racism. And I think that's evident in the impact that the cases have on people. We ask about uh, the impact on people. um, And very often it's quite extreme psychological impact of these events drives them to, to report it to us and to others. There's two things really that come up in relation to Angarishia Kona. One is about how the Gardaí deal with incidents of hate crime that are reported to them. Uh, And we reported extensively on that in a submission to the Commission on the Future of Policing, uh, where we noted that there was a very wide range of failures um, from failure to record uh, reported crimes, uh, failure to attend the scene, failure to collect evidence, uh, failure to protect the victim, uh, failure to meet uh, many of the aspects of the victim's uh, directive, um, and indeed even sometimes to bring the perpetrator to the victim's house. Um, so really quite extensive and quite frightening uh, failures. And those things were putting others off reporting to Gardaí. Uh, the second thing, of course, then, uh, is direct discrimination by Angarda Kona uh, against ethnic minorities and migrants. Um, and that could include, for example, um, Gardaí stopping people on the street uh, for no particular reason. Um, it could uh, involve um, racist abuse or insinuations in Garda stations uh, when someone attended for immigration purposes or to report a crime or something else. Um, and uh, it, very often um, it was 
uh, people reporting that they had had multiple experiences with the Gardaí um, that were problematic. So people weren't necessarily reporting the first thing that happened, um, but when it happened to them again, or if it had happened to someone they knew and then to them, they were more likely to report it to iReport. Um, both are worrying for me, uh, whether it's failures in terms of how Gardaí respond to reports of, of hate crime and harassment, um, or whether it's direct discrimination by Angarda Siakona, uh, both drive down trust in the Gardaí in policing, um, both isolate families and communities, uh, both create a, an atmosphere of fear um, that, that people feel unprotected. There are extremes we see too in the iReport data uh, where the Gardaí have engaged in what's kind of known as stop and search, uh, where they're, they're stopping and questioning people on the street, um, even uh, engaging in, in physical body searches on the street, um, uh, bringing people to Garda stations uh, with incidents that sound awfully like assault on the way and in Garda stations, refusing solicitors in Garda stations to, 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 to people. Um, and uh, and the use of, of cautions, um, uh, the, the issuing of paperwork that's incorrect or, or, or not filled out properly, uh, these kinds of incidents are, are there. So while they're not extremely common in the data, um, they are things that we've heard much more um, in migrant communities and ethnic minority communities. Um, and so the data is very much reflecting a wider pattern, uh, even if the numbers are small in iReport. Um, so, and they really fit together. A community that it feels that it's experiencing racial profiling is less likely to report racial harassment and hate crimes to Gardaí as well. Um, and that's why I say the two things are very interlinked. I wouldn't ever really separate them. Uh, both of them indicate that the Gardaí are not serving a very significant proportion of the population um, and that they're not serving the communities that they live in. Um, that justice is partial and access to justice is not equal for everybody. Um, and that's really what worries me when I see reports about Angarda Shikona in iReport. Ethnic minority and migrant communities um, very often share information amongst themselves because it's how they navigate the system if they're migrants, because it's how they learn who can be trusted. Um, and it's, you know, particularly if you're um, someone who experiences racism, um, how you protect yourself from that. So, you know, parents are used to sharing information about what schools or sports clubs are safe for their children. They're used to sharing information about what areas are, are safe to travel in and to work in and to, to, to be with their families in. So we get that kind of information uh, moving all the time about where is safe and where is not safe. Um, we know that, for example, um, the Gardaí stop black drivers um, in ways that are very reminiscent of the kind of driving while black phenomenon that we've seen elsewhere in Europe. Um, and I guess I would look a lot to Europe for comparisons rather than the US because it, it's very easy to take an idea from the US and, and apply it because it's an English language um, jurisdiction. But actually our, our policing and our laws is, is a little different. And so I would be inclined to look towards European patterns um, for, for much of that. And, and really that kind of driving while black phenomenon is very reminiscent of um, the European experience where it's assumed that immigrants can't afford a nice car and therefore it must be stolen. It's assumed that uh, that um, that people who are uh, uh, ethnic minority or, or not white um, might be guilty of immigration offences. Um, and so these kinds of things are, um, are put on them. We've had uh, examples just to demonstrate that kind of link between um, how 
police address immigration and how they address other things. We've had victims of hate crime report racist harassment to Gardaí, who then get visited by Gardaí who ask them questions about their immigration status and the immigration status of their families and friends, uh, to the point where even if their own immigration status is secure, they start to worry about bringing the attention on other people whose their status they're not so sure of. Um, Right at the moment, the only uh, guarantee that you have is that while a case is being investigated, not where you're a perpetrator or suspected perpetrator, but where you're actually the victim, your immigration status will not be investigated for the length of the investigation. So if I'm an immigrant and I report a crime against me, my immigration status won't be investigated for the length of the investigation, but it can be as soon as that investigation is finished. So if the Gardaí find that they, they can't pursue a prosecution and based on a hate crime against me, they can still turn around and investigate my immigration status at the end of that investigation. So why would I go to Gardaí if they're going to use the information I gave them to investigate my immigration status and that of my family? Right now, the Gardaí have carte blanche to use a person's information uh, to, to, decide, to, to look and see what their immigration status is. That means that anybody who's worried about their immigration status, renewal of visa, um, potential deportation, um, perhaps undocumented, and it might not be them, it might be someone in their family, they would worry about going to the Gardaí at all um, in case that kind of investigation was prompted. So we have a lot of work to do in building trust of ethnic minorities and migrant communities in Ireland um, with Gardaí. The more extreme examples, of course, you know, people learn about them very quickly. Um, so we, we do have a long way to go. Lucy also explains how the data exposes myths that exist within policing to minimise the concerns. I want to go back a few years because we, in response to iReport data, uh, the Garda Press Office said many times that uh, it wasn't people didn't trust on Garda Siakona, it was that they didn't trust police in their country of origin. And that affected their trust in Angarda Shekona. And for the first five years that I was doing iReport analysis, the Garda Press Office gave us that line, that it isn't that they don't trust Gardaí. And we kept saying, look, you know, th- this, is, this is what's happening. In year three of iReport, we actually changed the questionnaire and we said, if you didn't report to police, if you didn't report to Gardaí, why was it? And we gave 10 uh, options um, and only one of them was, I didn't trust uh, police in my home country. Others were, uh, you know, I didn't have time. It didn't seem worth the effort. I was afraid of, uh, you know, the perpetrator finding out, um, you know, a whole range of other reasons. And, you know, and in the six or seven years we've asked that question, you know, very, very few, maybe only one or two people have responded that they didn't trust Gardaí because of policing in their own country. The most frequent response was, I didn't trust Gardaí because of a recent or a, or a previous encounter with Gardaí. So it's not police in other countries that's driving distrust. It's encounters with our police service here in this country that is driving distrust in the same police service. And, and that to me is worrying. If Angarda don't take seriously that it is their own actions, their own practice that's driving down trust, that will continue to happen and become cumulative. And there will be entire communities that just don't trust and don't access the police service and therefore reduce their access to justice overall. I asked Lucy whether the iReport data supported the Ionan conclusion of institutional racism. I think the iReport data has supported that conclusion from the start. 
I think you only have to look at our submission to the Commission on the Future of Policing to see how much that is the case. Um, for the last four years, I've been looking for examples of good practice in Angarda Shikona that's reflected in the cases. In, to respond to the question that we only ever criticise the police. Um, and what I'm really interested in is driving better performance than Angarda Shikona. So I'm interested in good practice. And I have to say to you that good practice is very often down to individuals. It's down to people who voluntarily go and take training outside of the service. Uh, it's people who take an interest in the communities that they're serving. Uh, and very often they are lone voices in the station uh, where, they're, where they're working. Um, and that's very worrying to me that if Gardaí do not feel that they get the backup of the organisation, then they're reading something in it too. That, that we're seeing from the outside. And that is that the policies and practices themselves are not neutral. If it takes an individual to go above and beyond for an equal service, then the, then the, the service itself is not an equal service. Um, it, it should be that every Garda by default is able to provide that equal service in, to include ethnic minority and migrant communities. Um, and if it's not by default, then it's institutional racism. The policies and practices have not been built to include those communities. The Greedo office was established uh, around 2000, 2001. So we've had 20 years now of a, a, a very small, under-resourced part of Angarda Shikona trying to adapt the whole service to the needs of a growing and very well-established community now of, of communities of ethnic minority and migrant uh, people. Um, and it's just, it's not been fit for purpose for a long time, uh, despite the excellent efforts of people within that at various stages. Um, you know, the, that office has been the only one that has been really seriously engaged with external training at the European level. Um, and they have never had the power to intervene in a hate crime investigation they have to wait to be invited by the investigating guard. Um, and, and that to me is a policy and a practice that is institutionally racist. If you will not allow those with expertise in the area to intervene and to ensure that investigations are of an appropriate standard, that they meet uh, the adequate standards to provide an equal service, then that's institutional racism. Uh, institutional racism is not about direct discrimination. It's about whether your policies and practices are fit for purpose to provide an equal service. That's it. it it's about whether there are unequal outcomes at the end of the day. And we are seeing very unequal outcomes. So yes, I absolutely think that uh, the data supports the UN audit um, of institutional racism. A number of international bodies, including CEDAW and the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, have been critical of the lack of policies and structures in place in Ireland for recording hate crime, for addressing the needs of women from diverse communities, and even the fact that discrimination does not constitute a breach of guarded discipline. Third, reporting in 2019, noted that only 86 members of minority ethnic communities are in Angarda Siakana including one member from the Traveller community and no members from the Roma community. Applications from people from minority ethnic communities to join are down to 2.3%, compared with almost 15% nine years ago. Indeed, it took one individual 12 years of challenging to get Angarda to remove its ban on the wearing of the turban as part of the uniform. All of these policies issues 
go to the core of the finding of institutional racism, seen even today in the incorrect claim that ethnicity data cannot be gathered because of GDPR. The diversity of ways in which this institutional racism can infect the use of Garda powers is perhaps evident when the Ombudsman for Children concluded that ethnic profiling was an issue in the cases where blonde Roma children were removed from their families. This inquiry led to the National Roma Needs Assessment, which found that 53% of Roma respondents reported feeling discriminated against by Angara Siakona or in the courts. A further 78% of respondents reported that they had been stopped at least once by Angara Siakona for identification, and of those, 56% reported being stopped four or more times. In 2017, the Special Rapporteur on Child Protection completed a report in which he noted that when Gardaí were asked about cultural competence and diversity training, only one member interviewed remembered receiving such training. When Gardaí did talk to Dr Shannon about their dealings with foreign national children, and I quote, the language used by those members lacked sensitivity and suggested an absence of critically sophisticated understanding of the complex needs of an increasingly cultural and ethnically diverse population. Pavi Point, in its submission to the Commission on the Future Policing in 2018, stated that travellers are often overpoliced in relation to certain situations and crimes and underprotected in other situations where Angarda Siakona fails to respond to calls for help. As a result, crimes such as hate crime and domestic violence and sexual violence often go unreported by travellers in Roma. In 2020, a study conducted by Inspector Dave McInerney, one of the leading figures in diversity work within Angarda Siakona, was published. It was based on interviews conducted with over 180 Gardaí between 2012 and 2014. 10% of frontline officers surveyed said they had a poor view of travellers before joining the force, but that this had increased to 20% when asked about their views now. Not one of the Gardaí interviewed expressed a good or very good view of travellers, either before joining or now. 70% of Garda interaction with the community was to arrest one of its members, compared to 20% of instances where travellers were the victim of a crime. 40% of frontline guardies said they frequently heard disparaging remarks about travellers. 26% heard such remarks about Roma community and 21% about the black community. What makes this all the more worrying is that the vast majority of those interviewed were ethnic liaison officers and less than a third of them would intervene and challenge such remarks. Of course, for many, the moment so embedded in minds is the killing in December 2020 of George and Kencho by Gardaí outside his home. In the wake of this, Yari, Youths Against Racism and Inequality, conducted a survey of experiences of policing, and Haritha of Yari spoke to me about this work. Their survey, conducted between February and April of this year, was completed by over 160 people. So in terms of the Gardaí, we found that um, compared to only 19%, of white settled people, 35% of people of colour and travellers have been randomly stopped and searched by the guards with no prior reason. And out of all of the people, all of the people of colour and travellers who had been, 35% um, said that it had happened at least three times 
So you can see some level of like, you know, um, repeated um, discrimination there. And specifically from the people who had said that they're from a uh, black African um, background, 85% of those who were randomly stopped and searched by the guards felt that they had been racially profiled, you know. And I think it's very important to state here that it's not a crime, you know, to be young black and to have a car, um, to have a nice car that you've worked for. It's not a crime to be young black and like have a group of friends that doesn't make you, you know, into a gang. And it's clear, like from the survey that we did and also some like accounts of people describing their experiences, that young black people are especially you know, very likely to be followed around in um, shops, you know, assumed to be, you know, criminals by the likes of the Gardaí, but also security, you know, um, guards as well. Um, and everyone, and only 7%, so that's 93% of um, people who had been randomly stopped and searched by the Gardaí um, felt unsatisfied or dissatisfied after their encounter. And only 7% of people reported feeling satisfied um, after their encounter. And 45% felt humiliated, which just really shows the lack of respect that these young people are being um, treated with. And I think it's very significant as well, like especially significant that um, 40% of um, uh, those who were randomly stopped and searched by the guards felt angry after um, their encounter. And that shows, you know, the impact that this repeated discrimination has not only on young people of colour, but also their communities generally. Young people are feeling humiliated by their encounters with the police. Not just upset, not just angry, but humiliated. So there was one um, person who who was age 16. This was uh, someone from a young um, black background who uh, had been choked um, by the guards, um, uh, like as, as they like, you know, had um, violently um, restrained him. There was someone else from a Pakistani um, uh, background who had been called um, a terrorist. We also had a couple of accounts of people from, um, of, uh, you know, young men's men as well, who said that Gardy had like thrown around the K word at them. And like similar, this, uh, this very much like relates to like similar experiences of like some like young Asian women who like experience like exotification and like sexualization from the hands of the police um, generally as well. I think that like anti-Asian racism has even heightened um, even more over the past year, right? For Harita, this is an intersectional issue, deeply connected to issues of class and the nature of the state. Even if you think about um, the crises in housing and healthcare that are very often, you know, blamed on immigrant communities and people of colour, um, like the more that, uh, you know, immigrants and people of colour and generally like anyone from a minority background um, is blamed and scapegoated for crises that, you know, capitalism and the state have created, the more, um, you know, the guards as well are able to um, like uh, give in to the stereotype of certain communities that help foster even more division, but also prevent um, all young people from working class backgrounds that are all, like that, that, that um, ex- like that experience um uh, prejudice um, from the Gardaí like very recently you know we found that like um, the majority of fines given to young people in Dublin have been given out to um, young people in Blanchardstown and Ballymun um, you know shows just how much just how anti-working class the guards are and this is only furthered in how um, they refuse to um, properly um, you know assist delivery workers after they face you know crimes on on the street um, or their bikes being stolen or how they you know manhandle 
um, the brave Debenhams workers um, rather than supporting them um, in their struggle um, over the past year. You know, it's clear that they have anti-working uh, class um, attitudes seeped amongst the Guardi, which is like which is completely unsurprising to like us um, at Youth Against Racism and Inequality because we understand that the Guardi have to like uphold a system that is that that you know puts. Um, that pits the working class and uh, below um, all others and, um, you know, um, gives the barest um, concessions um, possible, right? And I think these, like, the, the racist division that's um, helped, that that's propped up by the Gardaí prevents all working class people from coming together, you know, to challenge um, how all young people are treated by the Gardaí, um, to challenge, you know, the increase in like emergency powers that's recent, recently been given, um, to challenge the crises in housing and healthcare. And the guards have a very important role to play in, you know, propping up this division. There is sufficient evidence that racism is an issue in Irish policing both in the behaviours of individual members, but also in the structures and policies of the organisation. This evidence, as demonstrated in this episode, comes from both Gardaí themselves and the communities they police. It has been gathered over two decades and through a host of diverse methods, surveys, interviews, focus groups and ethnographies. The consistency of the data, irrespective of the source or the method, is conclusive. Naming this racism does not create division, it supports and legitimises the experiences of those who've been at the receiving end of it. The failure of the organisation to address this by proactively seeking to find out as much as it can about racism in Irish policing is in itself racist. All of the global research tells us that racism is inherently an issue in policing. Not only is it a byproduct of the other traits of police culture, such as conservatism and suspicion, But it is such an issue that in the most authoritative study of police culture by Robert Reiner, it is deemed to be a trait of police culture in and of itself. The argument that this is because they reflect the views of society they are from is ill-founded. Racism is found to be higher among police than it is among general population. But societal racism is important in that often, because of social structures, ethnic minorities end up in the areas and groups who are more policed, which in turn enables and feeds generalisations and suspicions about those groups. This episode does not address what the guards have done to combat this, nor does it suggest what else needs to be done. I purposefully and solely wanted to address the basic question of is there a problem of racism within the Irish police? Because we need to get to grips with this before we can challenge it. It's time to stop debating whether racism is an issue in Irish policing. It's time for the state and the police to do the work to understand the full extent of it, to legitimise the experience of those who have been subject to that. We need to stop with any bad apples thesis that it's just some guardie and acknowledge the organisational basis of this problem. We need to stop countering these arguments with the majority of guardie do a good job. It's not anti-police to point to problems within the police. It is in fact anti-police not to address shortcomings in policing. If we have communities who do not trust the police, who feel angry or even humiliated, then this inhibits the police from doing their job. The police need the trust of communities to do their work and it puts police at risk to have this sentiment growing. I'm very grateful to all the experts who have contributed to this episode and to Tony and Brian for producing it. My hope is that bringing all of this research together in one episode will help people understand the scale of the issue or if you already understood that, 
to maybe give you the tool of evidence for the conversations you're having. This is a known problem in Ireland and we have reliable data stretching back two decades. We need to know more, but we already know.